Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Hey, man. My family and I just got back from Gainesville, Florida, where we were uh, visiting our church family down there at Salt Church. We planted Salt Church a little over three years ago, and uh, they are doing amazing. So Paul and Jenny and Jordan and Casey and Stephen and Mary Stewart, uh, say hi to all of you. They're suffering for Jesus. It's 80 degrees down there, um, and the Lord works in all kinds of weather, uh, and maybe Candeo is a great testimony to that. But it was amazing. We, went, we were able to go to Salt, uh, Salt Company, Salt Church, Salt Company. We were able to go to Salt Company on Thursday night. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that uh, there was no more room in that place for more college students to be. They're currently looking for a new space, but literally as they are pouring in, if you stand on the balcony of the Hillel Center, which is where they meet right across from campus, you can see, you can see students like, like moths to, to a flame just pouring out from the college to walk across the street to the Hillel Center where Salt Company meets. And as they're coming, we're going, we don't have any more chairs. There are no more chairs in this building, right? So we are grabbing everything we can uh, to, to make a space for these students. So they're looking for a new space uh, where they can actually meet the need of the, the great problem. I kept telling uh, Stephen Rice, I was just like, dude, don't, this is an amazing problem to have. It is a problem, you need to figure it out, but it's an amazing problem to have. And uh, so all of that to say, this is not at all in my notes. I just want you to know as a church, that every time we say goodbye to somebody, all of the pain that we feel as a church in sending those that we love so deeply to go to other places, to take the gospel to students, it is worth it. It is worth it when we do that. That death that we feel every time we say goodbye is a death that will bring about new life. And it's a death that we felt when, when Stan went to Columbia, Missouri. It's a death that we felt when the Sabinos went to Salt Church. It's a death that we felt when the, the, when the Benoits went to, uh, to Cincinnati. And it's a death that we will feel in about a year when the Jones go to Mankato. And so it's, but while it's a death, it is a death that is worth it every time we do it. So thank you for being a church uh, that is willing to say goodbye to some of the dearest people that you love for the sake of the gospel. So if you have a Bible, you can go, and you can go ahead and open to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We've been in Acts chapter 1 for a couple weeks. And what we've been doing in Acts chapter 1 is we've been looking at the expansive movement of the gospel in the early days of the church. And then we've been asking ourselves how, this, how the gospel's expansion then should inform our, our Christian witness now. How should the gospel expansion that happened at the very beginning of the church, how should that, what happened then, influence the way that we think about Christian, Christian mission and Christian witness now? So to remind us once again where we're at, let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Remember Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, wrote the book of Acts as well. He said, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, 
you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has, sent, has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what's interesting here is that the main verse for our series that we're in, our Can I Get a Witness series, our main verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that that, that, that main verse is actually Jesus' response to a bad question. It's Jesus' response to a bad question. One commentator said that the mistake in the disciples, there are more mistakes in the disciples' question than there are words in the question. And the question that the, that the disciples asked him is, Lord, are you now, are you restoring to the kingdom of Israel? Are you, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now, what they're talking about is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was the fundamental concept that directed all their, their entire understanding of the world. And that is that the idea that the coming kingdom, the kingdom of God, God's rule over God's people in God's place, that the coming of the kingdom would be that climactic moment when God would bring about the restoration of all things, when he would make all things that were wrong, he would make them right. And what their understanding of that kingdom plan was, was that Israel, was that the Jews would be at the very center of that restoration program. In other words, what the disciples understood the kingdom of God as was that he, they understood the kingdom of God primarily in terms of Jewish power and Jewish politics. But what's happening here is that the disciples are radically misunderstanding three things about the kingdom. They're radically misunderstanding the timetable of the kingdom. They're radically misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom. And they're radically in, misunderstanding the membership of the kingdom. The timetable of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, and the membership of the kingdom. Or another way to put it would be they're, they're misunderstanding when God's reign will happen, they're misunderstanding how it will happen, and they're misunderstanding who gets to be included. Who gets to be included in God's restoration plan and making all things new and ruling the earth? Who gets to be included in that? And so Jesus sets them straight. He sets them straight in verses 7 and 8. Look again, verse 7. In verse 7, he addresses their misunderstanding of the timing of the kingdom. They said, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said, that's not your business. It's not for you to know. Like, stop thinking about it. Stop asking when. And then in verse 8, he addresses their misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom. At the very beginning of, of verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. You see, they understood, they, they understood the kingdom, again, as Jewish power and Jewish politics. But what Jesus is saying is that, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of God working through the powerful and the political. The kingdom of God is a matter of God working through you. That the nature of the kingdom is not political influence, but it is spiritual transformation. So stop asking when it's going to happen and stop looking for the powerful and the elite to bring it about. No, no. The kingdom of God is going to be brought about through you as you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now this morning, 
what we're going to look at is perhaps Jesus' most, most provocative correction to his disciples concerning the membership of the kingdom. So who gets to be included in God's plan? Who gets to be included in God's kingdom? Now, up to this point, we've looked at, we've seen Jesus point to the way that he wanted the gospel to go to Jerusalem, right? So you, you, if, you think of, if you think of this gospel expansion, think of it in these concentric circles. You start in Jerusalem, and when the disciples would have heard Jerusalem, that, that's where they were. That, that was their town. They would have heard, okay, Jerusalem. All right, this is, this is right here. This is a bunch of Jewish people. They're like us, and they're near us. They're right across the street. They're in our own town. Got it. Jerusalem. And then when Jesus says, and you'll, go to, you'll be my witnesses in Judea. They would have gone, okay, Judea. That's, that's south of Jerusalem. It's like south Jerusalem, right? You look on a map, it's below it. And they go, okay, all right, generally a bunch of Jewish people. And they're not like right here, but they're pretty close. So they're not really near us, but they're still kind of like us. A little further away, got it. So Jerusalem, got it. Judea, got it. But then Jesus drops this cultural bomb. And he kind of sneaks in there. And he says, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all, in all Judea and Samaria. And you go, okay, big deal. So what? What's the big deal with Samaria? Well, the big deal with Samaria is that Samaria doesn't just represent a geographical region because Samaria is north of Jerusalem. But it doesn't just represent a geographical region, but instead an entire group of people called Samaritans. Samaria was north of Jerusalem. Now, the reality, though, is that if Jesus simply wanted to say, you'll go to Jerusalem, you'll go to the south, go to the north, he could have said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Galilee, which was the broader northern region above Jerusalem. But he's very specific. He doesn't just say Galilee. Why? Because Jesus is not speaking purely geographical at this moment. But instead, Jesus is speaking of a cultural difference. This isn't just people near you and like you. This isn't just people who are, who are a little bit further from you but like you. This is actually people who are near you and not like you at all. You see, in the mind of the Jews, the people of Samaria, the Samaritans, were the ultimate other. They were the ultimate example of those who don't belong. Have you ever felt like you don't belong? Have you ever felt like the other? When my wife and I, I was going to school in Chicago, we got married my junior year of college, and uh, we, were, we were walking to the train. There's this uh, train stop called the Merchandise Mart. It's both a train stop and a building. It's a 25-story building that has one of the train stops in the loop on the second floor. So we are on ground level, and we're trying to get to the second floor. Couldn't really figure out how to do it. Found an elevator. Go, aha, elevators take you to different floors. So we got on it. Little did we know, this was the kind of elevator that you needed a key in order to get to whatever floor you wanted to go to. And so we don't own the merchandise mart. We don't live there. I know nothing about it other than that it's there. And so we get on this elevator, realize that as the doors are closing behind us, but cannot tell it where to take us. And it starts moving. And we go, okay, we are along for a ride now. I wonder where we'll end up. 
Where we ended up, we just kept going and going and going. I'm like, are we going to pop out the top of this building? Like, we've been on here forever. The doors open. I step out because I'm like, well, we got to get out of here somehow. Step out, look up, and we find ourselves smacked out. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. We are in the middle of a fashion show <laughs> at the merchant. Literally, it's, it's as though, like, like, they put the runway like the elevator was there, the whoever, you know, the models are coming this way, and there we are. I got a, I've got a backpack and a hoodie on, right? And like, it's kind of like the, the, like the record, you know, like everything stops. The people are in like tuxedos, they have their, their cocktails and their appetizers, and they just are looking at us like, how did you get here? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how I got here, you know? And... And it just, they're staring at us. We're staring at them, feeling obviously totally out of place, right? I am not dressed for this occasion. And so like, like the Kool-Aid man who busted in the wrong house, I kind of like slowly moved back into the elevator. And, and of course, the, the door close button on elevators, those, are, those never work. I don't think they wire those in. Like they don't do anything. That five seconds took like two hours for those doors to close, right? It was very obvious in that moment that we did not belong. Have you ever felt like you didn't belong? Well, to the Jews, the Samaritans belonged even less than a couple of college students at a fashion show. Because to the Jews, the Samaritans weren't just different from them. They were sworn enemies. Why? Why were the Samaritans the sworn enemies of the Jews? Well, there are many reasons, but one of the big reasons is that if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 17, you'll see that God allowed the Assyrians to, to come in and take the people of Israel into exile because the people of Israel refused to repent of their sin. God used the, Assyria, the Assyrians to enact judgment on Israel to take them into exile. And in 729 BC, the king of Assyria brings in a bunch of foreign people into the land of Samaria. And these settlers take the, the remaining Israelite women, they marry them, they have children with them. And not only do they have children with them, but they bring bring with them their foreign gods. And so from 729 BC all the way up to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what the Jews understand the Samaritans to be is that they are the illegitimate half-breeds of a former conquered Israel. They're illegitimate children of enemy nations and worshipers of foreign gods, perpetually unclean in the eyes of the Jews. They were broken, they were dirty, they were untouchable. One commentator said this. He said, the ethnic and cultural boundary between the Jews and the Samaritans was every bit as rigid and hostile as the current boundary between blacks and whites in the most racist areas of the United States. We're beginning to see how the disciples would have heard this call to go to Samaria. You see, Jesus calling a bunch of Jewish disciples to go to Samaria, you could say is the New Testament equivalent of God calling Jonah to go preach to the people of Nineveh in the Old Testament. But what Jesus is telling his disciples is that the membership of the kingdom of God is for those who you least suspect. It isn't for people 
near you and like you. It isn't just for people like you. It isn't just for, just for people near you. It isn't even just for people who are, who are like a little further away, but, but very much like you. It is for people who are so radically, categorically, totally unlike you. Even they are included in my plan. Now, what is the gospel going to Samaria show us? The gospel going to Samaria show, shows us is that the gospel should eliminate any hint of racism, any hint of prejudice, any hint of discrimination in God's people because the message of the gospel is meant to go to all people, even to those you would least suspect. You see, if the call to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea was to show that the gospel crosses geographical boundaries, and the call for the gospel to go to Samaria was to show that the gospel crosses cultural boundaries. So at this point, we ask, okay, so what? So what? So what, what does that mean for us? Like, I don't live in the Middle East. I'm not Jewish. I, I don't have religious animosity towards my neighbors to the north. You know, as weird as Minnesota is sometimes, right? It's like, just call them geese. They're not gray ducks. I don't understand that. And it's a casserole, okay? It's not a hot dish. Just call it what it is, you know? Like, as... As much as we have that, right, it's like, I don't hate Minnesotans, you know? So, so what, what's the deal? What's the deal with us? Well, most of us don't have, probably don't have religious adversaries. My guess is that there are some of you, perhaps many of you, who don't have religious adversaries, but wouldn't you say you have political ones? Republicans towards Democrats, Democrats towards Republicans, independents don't like either. When you look at people, when you look at people, do you see people made in the image of God who, who will live an eternity somewhere, or do you simply see an embodied political party? Do you see people to reach with the gospel, or do you see opponents to beat up the ballot box? Does the way, how about this? Does the way that you talk about people with different political views, does the way that you talk about them with other people who, who are like you, who agree with you in your politics, does the way that you talk about people with other political views display God-honoring love towards those who are different than you, or does it display disdain and hate? You see, here's what's true, is that whatever you look to as your primary identity will often become the filter through which you limit your associations. Let me say that again. Whatever you look to as your primary, as your ultimate identity will often become the filter through which you limit your associations. Say, so what does that mean? I'll give you a few examples. Take financial success. If you see financial success or just success in general as your primary identity or the thing that you like aspire most to, the thing that determines your values and dictates your decisions, finances, success, then, you'll, then what, 
will often happen is you'll begin to limit your associations to those who are only successful or doing well financially, or as those who have the same goals as you do and are going, you know, are going in the same direction and are aspiring to the same things. And then what you'll have is you'll have a disdain for the poor. Or you'll have a disdain for the unsuccessful, for quote unquote, the common person. And not only that, what you'll tend to do is you'll tend to attribute a lack of success or a lack of resources. You'll say, well, they're poor because they're morally deficient. They're just lazy. They don't work hard enough. I'm a hard worker. Look at the success that I'm at least striving to achieve. You begin to look down your nose on other people. How about this one? Maybe maybe it's your generation. I don't know if you've noticed. We have a lot of college students around here. We really love college students. We seek to be a multi-generational church with a next generation focus, but something can take root that, that I'll call generational pride. And here's what that looks like. With generational pride, you'll tend to elevate the strengths of your generation while minimizing its weaknesses. But then what you'll do is you'll look at other generations and you'll, you'll elevate their deficiencies while minimizing their strengths. So here's the way that that can work. If your primary identity, if the way that you view yourself, if you see what brings you the most value in your life is your age or your experience or your wisdom, then you'll, you'll probably end up not taking those who are younger very seriously. You give them a little pat on the head. You'll say, oh, that's cute. Maybe someday you'll grow up and you'll be just like me and you'll actually know what's up with the world and you'll be much more wise, much more, you know, you will have attained so much. Or... You see your primary identity as like, I'm relevant, I'm youthful, I'm young. And you'll look at people who are older than you and you just see them as out of touch, progressive. You're the cause of all the problems we have in the world right now. And you'll brush them off as irrelevant. Maybe you see your primary identity as your intellect or your education that the letters and degrees behind your name, that as they stack up, you feel as though you're, you're sophisticated, you're educated, you'll want to be associated with the elite. You'll want to be associated with the intelligent. And you'll have a disdain for those who aren't as smart as you. Whatever you see as your primary identity will often become the filter through which you limit your associations. But what the gospel does is that when you trust Jesus for the atonement of your sin and as a source of your righteousness, what that does is that it gives you a new primary identity. It gives you a new identity as one who is in Christ. And what Jesus is saying is that when you are given that new identity, when you are now one who is in Christ, and that should totally change the way that you see people who are different than you. That should totally change the way that you see them, that you think of them, that you interact with them. So as you take the gospel to those who are different than you, what the gospel then should do is it should dissolve those dividing walls between you and them, making those who were maybe even perhaps once your worst enemy, now your closest family. Now, here's the thing. The gospel does not eliminate all of, our, all of the differences that exist between us. It doesn't, and it shouldn't. 
The gospel does not eliminate all the differences that exist between us, but what the gospel does is it reprioritizes them. And it reprioritizes them under our primary identity as those who are in Christ, which means that all of those things that would normally divide us, all the cultural divide, all the, all the racial differences, all the political differences, all the generational differences, all the intellectual differences, that all of those differences are now reprioritized under our primary identity as those who are now in Christ. So that now, that within the people of God, that while all of those differences still exist among us, now we can truly love and serve one another Because the things that unite us are not any of those other things, but the things that unite us is that we are a a diverse people who stand under one banner, who've been bought by one blood, who've been adopted into one family, and and who are united into one body. You see, when the gospel reprioritizes our identity, it will make us a church that when people look at us, they go, how in the world can people who are so different love each other so deeply? And the answer we can give is because our primary identity is not any of those other things, but it is as those who are in Christ. And now we get to celebrate our differences as God's unique tapestry that he is weaving here in Candeo and across the world. So how can this happen? How can this happen? How can we change the way that we view people who are so radically different than us? How can this happen? You see, the only way you'll be able to love and reach people who are different than you in almost every way is when you see this is exactly what God has done toward you in Christ. Seeing any person or group of people as the other is a sign that you don't understand who you are in Christ. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh and became like us so that he could save us who are so different than him. How much different are you from God? How much different are you from Jesus Christ? And yet it's only when we see how close God came to us despite how different we are from them. It's only then that we can take the gospel to those who are different than us. So this morning, who do you see, who in your life, what person or group of people do you see as an opponent rather than as one made in the image of God and in need of the gospel? Is there a person or group of people that you see as the other? Are there people that when you think of them, that all you can think about are your differences? That when you see them or think of them, all you can think about are stereotypes. You see, what the gospel should do in us is that it should make us a people, it should make us a church who see people as people and not as stereotypes. Who see cultural barriers and we seek to cross them with the gospel because we understand the great divide that Jesus crossed that Jesus crossed to save us. That in our church, there should be no hint of racism. That in our church, there should be no hint of prejudice. That in our church, there should be no hint of elitism. That in our church, there should be no hint of discrimination. 
because we are a people deeply rooted in the gospel and we understand who we are in Christ. Samaria was geographically close, but culturally was worlds apart. So who in your life is physically close, but culturally worlds apart? Who is God calling you to share the gospel with who is so radically different than you? Say, how do I change my heart? Meditate on God's glorious gift towards you in Christ, the salvation that he brought to you in Christ, and ask God to transform your heart and renew your mind that, so that you would love people who are so different than you, that your love for people who are so different than you, than you would be a reflection of God's love for you who are so different than him. I want to share with you a few stories of a few of our college students who are modeling this right now for us in tremendous ways so we can follow their example. Let's listen to their stories. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.